What I want to do this afternoon is discuss the jhanas. Uh, they're described in the suttas in quite a number of different suttas. And generally what we find is the exact same description over and over again. Uh, this makes sense because the Buddha's teachings were preserved as an oral tradition. And so when you're learning, to, when you're memorizing a sutta, and you get to the jhana part, you just say the jhana thing, right? And so I'm sure the Buddha had some variety in what he was teaching. But over time, his teachings sort of melded into what they call pericopes, or stock phrases. And so there's this jhana stock phrase. And pretty much that's it. And it doesn't have a lot of detail in it. I started practicing the jhanas with some instruction in 1990. And by 2009, I was beginning to get an understanding of what the stock description was saying. It's rather terse. It's not really clear what's going on. Occasionally you find a little extra pieces added in. Sometimes you don't get quite as much detail. There's not much there, but what I want to do this afternoon is share these pericopes, the stock phrase description of the jhanas, and explain to you what I think it means and how that relates to actually experiencing these states. What I'm going to read you comes from the second discourse in the Long Discourses, the Samanyapala Sutta, uh, the Discourse on the Fruits of the Spiritual Life. <coughs> All of the jhana descriptions start out, quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. One enters and remains in the first jhana. So this is a seclusion from the hindrances. I'm assuming since I mentioned the hindrances the other day, that you're all familiar with them. Wanting, not wanting, too little energy, too much energy, and doubt. Though it's usually given as sense, desire, aversion, a sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. So one needs to be secluded from these. Uh, and the way to get secluded is to do what I've been calling generate access concentration. In other words, when you sit down to meditate and your mind wanders off, it's most likely wandering into one of these hindrances. Bring it back and keep doing this until it stays there. This is your seclusion from the hindrances. This is generating access concentration. So one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is accompanied by, well, the Pali words are vitaka and vichara. In this translation here, it says applied and sustained thought. It turns out, though, that in the suttas, vitaka and vichara just means thinking. And we could translate it as thinking and more thinking. Uh, thinking and examining or thinking and pondering is probably more literally accurate. But you notice in Pali, often there's some phrase and it has a lot of adjectives associated with it or a lot of nouns that are very similar, and I think that's what we find here. So, one enters and remains in the first jhana, where there's still some thinking. 
Remember when I was describing access concentration, I said you were fully with the breathing, and if there were thoughts, they were wispy and in the background? When you get to the first jhana, you still got the wispy background thoughts. You haven't really managed to shut down the thinking yet. And filled with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, the piti and sukha, the glee and joy. So you sometimes hear that the first jhana has five factors, uh, vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ikagata, which means one-pointedness. Now, I just read you the description. Did anybody hear one-pointedness? It's just not there. There's thinking. As time passed, the understanding of the jhanas in Buddhism changed. It evolved. And it evolved to where in the first jhana there was one-pointedness. And since you can't have one-pointedness and thinking at the same time, because that would be multi-pointedness, they changed what vitaka and vichara meant from thinking, which is how the Buddha understood it, to something like initial and sustained attention to the meditation object. It's true, you do have initial and sustained attention to the meditation object in any meditation you do. If you sit down to follow your breath, you initially put your attention on the breathing, and then hopefully at some point you sustain your attention on the breathing. It's just that the words vitaka and vichara don't mean that. The initial and sustained attention isn't addressed in the description of the jhanas. So basically what we've got is some thinking that's in the background, and the foreground is the piti and sukha, the rapture and happiness. Now, it doesn't say anything about how to get there other than to be secluded from the hindrances. In the paragraph that precedes the description, though, it gives some hints. It says that when one sees that the five hindrances are abandoned, gladness arises. Gladness is the Pali word pamoja. And basically, when I tell you when you've gotten to access concentration, stay there for a while and then put your attention on a pleasant sensation. I'm telling you, put your attention on the pamoja that has arisen because of your concentrated mind. And then it says from pamoja, rapture arises, piti arises. And there you go. You're off into the first jhana. It says, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the rapture and happiness. This is a more advanced instruction. When you're learning the jhanas, the first thing to do is to learn to get there the first time. And then the next thing to do is to learn to get there the second time. And then you're beginning to get some clue of what's going on, and you can get there and actually sustain the experience. And when you've gotten skilled enough to be able to get into these states, in this case the first jhana, and sustain the first jhana, you may find that the experience really is only taking place in your body, sort of maybe up the spine, upper torso, the head. It's not really all-encompassing. And so what this instruction says, as an advanced practice, don't get too carried away on this short retreat, 
Okay. Once you've got the jhana really well stabilized, then you can spread it throughout your whole physical body. The word that's used for body is kaya, and it's pretty apparent from other uses of kaya in the sutta that it's referring to the physical body. The way to spread the piti and sukha, okay, you've got it in your head and upper torso and back, is put your attention where it feels the strongest, and then like move it into your arm. Move your attention into your arm. You don't know how to move piti and sukha, right? But you do know how to move your attention. So you just simply move your attention into your arm. And then you move your attention into your other arm. And then you come back to where it was. you were noticing the piti and sukha. And probably the piti and sukha will have spread to some degree down your arm. Get that nice and stabilized. And then move your attention into the rest of your torso. And yeah, the piti sukha seems to follow. And then work on each of the legs. You don't have to move the piti and sukha. You need to get it well stabilized and then move your attention and the sense of piti and sukha most likely will follow. But you've got to be able to get into the jhana and sustain it before you can go on to this more advanced practice. We have a simile. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin, sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball so that the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused with moisture inside and out, and yet would not trickle. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by this rapture and happiness. So we get a picture of what life was like at the time of the Buddha. You didn't go to the Safeway and buy a bar of soap. You got your skilled bath attendant or his apprentice to take a metal bowl and pour in just the right amount of soap flakes and then just the right amount of water and then mix the water and the soap flakes until you had a homogeneous ball of soap. The mixing is a kind of frenetic activity. It's not a real peaceful thing, right? you will find the first jhana not to be especially peaceful. PT is agitating. It's energy. I have a question that somebody left. Is the rapture associated with access, actually associated with the first jhana, uh, due to heightened awareness of chi energy? I would say it's not heightened awareness of chi energy. I would say it's heightened chi energy. <coughs> if we take chi energy to be basically the, the energy of being alive, what you're doing in generating the first jhana is getting that life force energy really energized. And it, it's actually not just a noticing of something that's always there, it's generating something that's more powerful, more energetic than the usual life force energy. And so this mixing of the soap flakes, this frenetic mixing, is very much like the frenetic energetic feeling that you have in the first jhana. The water totally pervading the soap flakes corresponds to the piti and sukha 
totally pervading your body when you do the drink, steep, saturate, and suffused advanced practice. So, as I say, you want to learn to get to the first jhana. You want to get there repeatedly, and you want to be able to stabilize it. Um, yeah, and as an optional thing on, on this retreat, you could try and spread it, but don't feel like that's something you have to do. The length of time you would want to stay in the first jhana is, well, inversely proportional to the intensity of the PT. If the PT is really intense, it can be like finger in the light socket. It's just over the top and it gets to be too much quite quickly. I mean, after 30 seconds, you may feel like I've had enough. If the PT energy is more mild, then maybe you would stay in this first jhana five to 10 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes is probably the outside limit that's useful. Uh, beyond that, yeah, there's not so much additional advantage that you're going to gain. Your time sense is going to be distorted. So I say five to 10 minutes and, you know, stay there for a bit. If the intensity level is not so strong, if the intensity level is quite strong, or even if it's been a while and you want to move on to the second jhana, then further, with the subsiding of vitaka and vichara, the thinking and examining, or thinking and more thinking, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is accompanied by internal confidence and unification of mind, and is without thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. So, the move to the second jhana from the description is that the thinking goes away. It mentions it initially and then repeats it once you're in there. So, all the thinking's gone. Well, that's a nice ideal thing. And on a nice long retreat, like a month or three, you probably can get to that state. On a week-long retreat, if you get to the second jhana and there's still some background thinking, don't make a big deal about it, all right? You're just sort of wobbling in and out of the jhana, all right? As a practical matter to move to the second jhana, what you want to do is take a deep breath. You might remember from yesterday I said that when you get to access and the breath gets very shallow, don't take a deep breath. It'll take you away from the first jhana. When you're in the first jhana and you want to go away from the first jhana, take a deep breath. You take the deep breath, you let all the energy out, and the PT energy comes down. Basically, what you're doing is a foreground-background shift. You've got the PT energy in the foreground of the first jhana, and the sukha in the background. And you take the deep breath, and the PT energy comes down, as does the sukha, but the PT drops far more. And now the sukha energy predominates, and the PT's in the background. Remember, sukha is joy or happiness. It's an emotional state. So basically, you're doing a switch from a primarily physical experience with PT glee, sort of taking you over, to an, a, a primarily emotional experience of joy or happiness. 
I say joy or happiness, it varies from person to person whether they find that their experience of sukha is better described by the word joy or better described by the word happiness. Doesn't matter, whatever comes up for you. It also says that the second jhana is accompanied by internal confidence and unification of mind. Actually, a better translation would be inner tranquility and unification of mind. Basically, the thinking goes away, and when the thinking goes away and the piti calms down, it's far more tranquil. It's internal tranquility. And because the thinking's gone away, your mind can really coalesce around the experience of sukha. Your object of attention in the second jhana is the emotional sense of happiness. And there's some piti in the background. Whereas in the first jhana, the PT was probably making you vibrate, might have shown up as heat, make your hair stand on end, feels a little over the top intense perhaps. In the second jhana, the PT has calmed down enough to where there might be some rocking or maybe some swaying or a little circling, maybe a little tingly in the background, but not so, not so intense. And that's because You've taken the breath, you've calmed it down, you've got the inner tranquility in order to really get the second jhana, focus on the sense of sukha, and now that's your object of attention. Notice the breath is not mentioned in any of this. I mentioned yesterday that the breath was the key to get you to access, and you let go of that key, you switch to the pleasant sensation, and the pleasant sensation turns into the piti and sukha. You don't need the breath for the rest of the trip in the jhanas, okay? It's done its thing, it's out of the way. And so now you're moving to different objects as you move through the jhanas. It's the piti sukha experience in the first, and now it's the sukha piti experience, all right? With the sukha being the primary thing. And you're just sitting there focused on that sense of joy or happiness. It says, one drenches steep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Again, the sukha experience may seem to be localized. If the PT is more in the head area, the sukha seems to be more in the heart area. Um, if you want to expand it, if you want to drench deep, saturate, and suffuse from wherever the sukha seems, put your attention where it seems the strongest in your body, and then move your attention into the other parts of the body. You're just moving your attention, but the sukha will follow, along with perhaps a little tingling from the piti. We have a simile. Suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet for water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain. Yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench deep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake, so there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused by the cool water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration so that there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by the rapture and happiness. 
The simile turns out to be an incredibly accurate picture of what the second jhana feels like. I had been practicing the second jhana for a year before I ever heard the simile. And my teacher Ayakema read this from the sutta, and I remember running up to her after the talk and going, Aya, Aya, it's just like that. The second jhana is just like that. Uh, it really is. The picture is of a lake, and there's no rain, and there's no uh, streams coming in, but at the bottom of a lake, there's a spring of cool water. And that cool water just totally fills the lake until there's no part of the lake that's untouched by the cool water. In the second jhana, there's the spring of sukha, and that sukha is just coming out of it, just like in a spring. And at first, it was only getting the upper part of my body, and then, you know, move my attention, and, you know, the cool water, the sukha, spreads through the whole body. And with it comes a little tingling, a little piti. So, this is a really, really clear picture of the second jhana. If you get to what you think is the second jhana, then, yeah, you'll probably find that there is this sense of the sukha just sort of upwelling and filling you. And it's a pretty good marker for knowing where you are. I would say that because of the subtlety of the second jhana, the first jhana is not subtle at all. I mean, there's nothing subtle about glee, rapture, PT. But the second, now that the PT's calmed down and you're focused on an emotional sense of happiness or joy, it's subtle. So you would want to learn to stay there, I would say, 10 to 15 minutes. Right? Get, get good at it so that you can really be with this more, more subtle object. We'll see as we move through the descriptions of the jhanas that they are in order of increasing subtlety or decreasing grossness. Right? And so this is the whole idea. You get some concentration from a jhana, you stay in it, let your concentration build, and now you have enough concentration to move to the next jhana, where the object is more subtle. You successfully stay with that, and that builds your concentration, and you can repeat for the next one. So, having been in the second jhana for 10 to 15 minutes, further, with the fading away of rapture, one dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly comprehending, and experiences happiness with the body. Thus one enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. One drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this happiness free from rapture, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the happiness. Okay, so with the fading away of rapture, the third jhana, the piti, goes away. As a practical matter, again, you can use your breath to help you make the transition. You're hanging out just being happy, you know, really happy, genuinely happy, for no reason. It's, it's the quality of happiness if it's like your birthday and somebody gives you a nice present and you open it up and it's like, oh wow, I just wanted one of these, thank you, thank you, that kind of happy. But it's not due to external circumstances, it's due to your concentrated mind. And so now, 
to move on as a practical matter. Take a deep breath and let the intensity level of the happiness start coming down. Turn down the intensity of the sukha. And when you do, there's a sense of things going down. As it begins to decrease in intensity, it's helpful to remember a time when you were very contented because contentment is the best way to describe the object of the third jhana. So, I don't know, you've just eaten the perfect meal, you didn't overeat, and you don't have to wash the dishes. You know, it's like, ah, right? Or whatever memory of contentment you have. So, you start the intensity level of the sukha down, and then you remember for like a quarter of a second the incident where you were contented and you pluck the feeling of contentment out of that. So turn it down. It's coming down. Here's the content, contented memory. Pluck the feeling of contentment out of it and then now let the sukha become the contentment. Focus on the contentment. That's the object of the third jhana. To check that you actually made it to the third jhana and just not a lower energy level of the second jhana, all of the piti should be gone, all of the glee, the rapture. It's a very still place. There should be no sense of movement at all. The contentment or satisfaction or wishlessness is basically what's being described when it says one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. Now there is a Pali word that could be translated as contentment. But the subjective experience of equanimous, uh, mindful, and happiness is the sense of deep satisfaction. Satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. Okay? You are just completely satisfied, wishless. Again, there's the drench, deep, saturate, and suffuse the body with the contentment. And again, it seems lower. If the first jhana was the head, the second the heart, the third maybe is in the belly, or however it lines up for you. It's a lot of idiosyncratic bits in, in the jhana, so don't make a big deal about it. It has to be a certain way. Just wherever that contentment is, if you want to spread it, put your attention there and then move your attention to the parts of the body that don't feel contented and see what happens. Again, we have a simile. Suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that had been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched, deep, saturated, and suffused with water, so there would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So the picture is of a lotus pond with lotuses coming up out of the mud, but not above the surface of the water. They're leading their whole lives underwater and completely filled with water. This is a very still picture. There's no lotuses waving in the breeze. There's no lotuses bobbing on the surface. They're under the water. The PT's gone. The third jhana is a very still place. 
And yeah, you're immersed in this sense of contentment. It's a pretty nice place to hang out. I mean, it's wishlessness. You don't want anything else other than being in the wishless state. It's a very nice place to stay. Again, you want to learn to maintain it for 10 to 15 minutes. Because it's more subtle than the second jhana, you want a good second jhana before you try for the third jhana. And yeah, you want to learn to get good at this because guess what? The fourth jhana is going to be even more subtle. So after you've gotten skilled at the third jhana, further, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous passing away of joy and grief, one enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful and contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. Okay. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous passing away of joy and grief. This is not to indicate that there was pain or grief in the earlier jhanas. It's indicating that you're going to a neutral state. There certainly was joy in the first two jhanas, and there's pleasure in the first three jhanas. That state of wishlessness is a nice, pleasant place to be. Not so much happy or joyful, but definitely pleasant. So you're aiming for a place that it says is beyond pleasure and pain. As a practical matter to get there, what I find is that in the third jhana, I have a little Buddha smile. In, in the first jhana, I have a big grin, you know, all that zuka, all that piti. In the second jhana, uh, a big smile. Maybe you don't see my teeth anymore, right? The third jhana, it's, it's a Buddha smile, you know, just a little wispy smile. To move to the fourth, all I've got to do is get in touch with the pleasure of that smile and let it go basically relax all the muscles in my face. When I do, there's a sense of things starting to drop down. I go with the sense of things dropping down and just let it drop. It sinks for a while and then eventually comes to rest in a place of quiet stillness. That's the fourth jhana. It's emotionally neutral. It's beyond pleasure and pain. And the words actually are beyond sukha and dukkha, right? So you're, you're in an emotionally neutral place. And it says it contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. Um, kind of hard to focus on mindfulness. Kind of hard to focus on equanimity. But if I tell you focus on quiet stillness, then you will be focused on the equanimity, and because you're focused on it, you'll be mindful. So as a practical matter for the instructions, let go of the pleasure of the third jhana, find a sense of things sinking down, and let them sink down to a very emotionally neutral space that's very quiet and still. Focus on the quiet and stillness in order to main, maintain the fourth jhana. 
It says, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. When I heard this the first time, I was kind of scratching my head, whereas the first simile, first jhana simile, made sense, and the second seemed over the top, right on, and the third made really good sense. I didn't get this. Pure, bright mind? Okay, my mind was pure because, yeah, there was nothing unwholesome going on in it. Bright? Uh, I, I didn't get the bright. Well, I talked to Aya Kema and she said it was the fourth jhana, so okay. And it certainly was a very quiet, still place and I was very concentrated and I could even find the fifth jhana from it, so I didn't worry about it. There's a simile, maybe that's helpful. Suppose a man were to be sitting covered from the head down by a white cloth, so there would be no part of his entire body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. So the picture is of a guy with a white sheet over his head. He's sitting there, and there's a sheet completely covering him up. Okay, I could get the sense of isolation that the sheet conveys. When the fourth jhana is good, you, you definitely feel withdrawn from the world. The sounds maybe seem a bit muffled, a bit further away. Uh, yeah, you, you, you've withdrawn, you know, like you've had a sheet over your head. But why a white sheet? Uh, the commentaries talk about why a white sheet, and what they say makes absolutely no sense at all. <laughs> Okay, so I don't know why the bright or the white, all right? But, you know, I'm getting to a really quiet space and, yeah, coming out of it, I've got a really concentrated mind. So, well, all right, this is pretty good. I learned the fourth jhana in 1990. Sixteen years later, I went on retreat with Powak at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts for a month. Now, he teaches the Vasudhi Magajanas, which I knew were quite different from what I had been practicing. And furthermore, I had talked to enough of his students to know that I probably needed six months in order to get to his jhanas, not one month. So I went in with no expectations, more just curious what he was teaching. So a field trip for the Vasudhi Magajanas. And... Within a few days, he had put me to work doing the counting for half an hour and then continuing the meditation practice for, he said, two, three, four hours. Okay, so I had a little timer and I'd set it, you know, like, okay, it's three hours till the next meal, all right, set the timer. And I would count and the, and the timer would vibrate when it was half an hour and then it would vibrate, you know, at the end of my sitting. And I got really concentrated. Uh, I wasn't trying to do the jhanas that I knew. I basically was getting to access concentration fairly quickly and just staying there for three or four hours. What began happening fairly soon after that was I would you know, do the counting and then I'd let go of the counting. And then after a while of just following the breath, I would get this huge burst of piti that would come over me. It was violent shaking. I was a little worried my head was going to pop off. 
right? It lasted yeah, maybe 20 seconds or so. And then it would settle out. And so the next time I had an interview with Powalk, I described what was happening. I didn't say I'm getting PT. I just described the symptoms. And he says to me, that is gross PT. Do not let that happen. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, since I'm used to meditating with a little smile on my face, because I found that really helpful, I was like, okay, now I have to meditate with a really neutral expression. And I found, yeah, I could prevent the gross PT from showing up. And I could just sit there following my breath, hoping to get a nimitta, a circle of light, which is the prerequisite for getting to the Vasudhimaga jhanas. Nah. I got a preliminary nimitta, but not very good. But sometimes, you know, I'd done my four hours of his stuff and my timer had gone off and it was like, I'm going to smile. And I'd smile and I'd get the violent PT for like 20 seconds. And then I would drop down into this place where it was unstoppable happiness. I had this huge grin on my face, you know, a break your face grin that just wouldn't go away. And furthermore, my mind wasn't going anywhere. I was just locked in. Uh, it was second jhana, but it was far more stable than I had ever experienced before. Far deeper and far more profound. And the first time it happened, it was like, oh, cool. And so I hung out for, you know, like five or ten minutes. And it's like, wonder what the third jhana's like. I couldn't get to the third jhana. You see, during that time, the PT would come back. You know, I'd be sitting there grinning away, and then here comes the PT. And, you know, I was like, okay, right? And so I'd try to go to the third jhana, you know, take a breath, let things calm down to contentment. Nope, here comes the PT again. It took about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And then, without me doing anything, it was just sort of like my mind went over the edge of a cliff and it dropped down to contentment. Very stable contentment. Uh, again, my mind not going anywhere. Uh, a much deeper third jhana than I had ever experienced before. And so I hung out there five or ten minutes and it's like, oh, wonder what the fourth jhana's like. Nope, couldn't get there. Couldn't wipe that little smile off my face. You know, it's like, okay, let it go. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was just there. So I had to hang out, and then eventually, again, it just sort of went over the edge of a cliff all by itself. And there was that dropping down feeling I was very familiar with, and then it settled into a place of extreme quiet and stillness. But unlike all my previous experiences of the fourth jhana, instead of being dark, black, it was bright white. It was like I was sitting in the middle of an open field on a sunny day with a sheet over my head and my eyes open. Oh, exactly what the simile says. That was very interesting because it would indicate that the Buddha and his disciples were practicing the jhanas at a level of concentration that I heretofore had never experienced. But by staying for an extremely long time in access concentration, I was able to trigger something that matched the description of the fourth jhana to a T. And so then I had some idea of the Buddha 
and his disciples were practicing at a much deeper level than I had been practicing. This makes sense. You read the suttas and you find out, having eaten the midday meal, they resort to a secluded dwelling or the root of a tree or the forest for the day's abiding. And then at sunset, they'd come back to the monastery. Okay, so they ate the midday meal at what? Nine, ten o'clock in the morning. And then they went off and meditated for eight hours. I don't think they were doing 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking. <laughs> These were people that had grown up sitting cross-legged. And so they just go sit at the root of a tree. Maybe they get up occasionally, I don't know. But they were doing longer sits. You know, like my three or four hour in access concentration, and then triggering off the jhanas and getting states that are described here that are far deeper than most lay people are going to experience on a 10 day retreat. It took me being on a month long retreat and really working the concentration for an extended period of time before I started getting this. So, what's the point? Why bother doing this? Notice it says in the fourth jhana, one has a mind, one has mindfulness that's one has mindfulness that's fully purified by equanimity. What often follows the fourth jhana in the suttas is the following: when one's mind is thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. One directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus. This is my body, having material form, composed of the four primary elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. The purpose of the jhanas is to generate a mind that is concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, which you can then direct and incline to knowing and seeing, or direct and incline to doing an insight practice. The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for investigating reality. And what reality should you investigate? This body and this mind. I suspect a number of you might have heard of the four establishments of mindfulness. One part body, three parts mind. Okay. If you do your insight practice, and the Satipatthana Sutta contains a bunch of insight practices, if you do them with a supremely concentrated mind, you're actually much more able to gain insights. You have a sharp mind that is more penetrating. We usually tend to look at the world in terms of, can I eat that or will that eat me? Well, we get a little more sophisticated, but it's all about, is this something I want to get from me or is this something I have to push away from me? And notice it's me, 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 all throughout that. 
despite the fact that it appears relatively obvious that the world revolves around me. Ain't so. Right? Our normal way of looking at the world is with ego-colored glasses. If you practice these four states, you don't have any bandwidth left to be creating your ego. Everyone is aware that your ego is something you make up. You, know, you have to think it up or emote it up, right? It's, it's not there by itself, all right? You spend all of your energy moving through these four states and your ego is gone and shut up and sit in the corner. When you come out, you have taken off the ego-colored glasses. You have this mind that is concentrated, pure and bright, uh, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, and not egocentric. So now when you do your insight practice, now when you investigate reality, you're doing so from a less egocentric perspective, and you have a far better chance of seeing what's happening. Getting enlightened is a difficult thing, right? Suppose you wanted to cut this platform in two, nice solid wooden platform, and you only had a butter knife. You could do it, right? You sit down and you just start you know, pressing away and it's going to be a lot of hard work. Might be easier than getting enlightened though. But if you had a whetstone, you started sharpening that butter knife, right? And then you started cutting. It'd go a lot faster. You'd make a lot more progress. In fact, you would make up all the time you wasted with the sharpening, right? This is what we're doing with jhana practice. You're sharpening your mind so that it can cut through all of the obscurations that we normally have. In the Tibetan tradition, the bodhisattva of wisdom is Manjushri. Manjushri is usually depicted holding a sword that he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is just sharpening Manjushri's sword. Now, he hasn't cut any bonds of ignorance. You still got to go out and wield the sword. And you certainly don't want to make the mistake of just sharpening. I mean, if all you do is sharpen, Eventually, you got no sword and you still got all the bonds of ignorance. So, the way to work with these states is during the first part of a sitting, get your mind supremely concentrated by moving through these states. And then, having generated the concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy mind, incline and direct it to investigating reality by doing some sort of insight practice. Guarantee you, You'll get more insights and more profound insights with a jhanically concentrated mind. That's just how it works. This is the Buddha's genius. The jhanas were well known during his time. His first two teachers taught him the first teacher up through the seventh and his second teacher up through the eighth. And when he had mastered them, his teacher said, you got it. And he's like, no, man, when I come out, there's still dukkha, right? His teachers were teaching him that this is the end of the spiritual path. They were the end, the goal. 
He was smart enough to realize, one, they're not the goal, but two, they are useful. And he began coupling jhana practice and insight practice. And this was really what he was teaching. What I've just read you is from what's called the gradual training. The training that the monks undertook when they wanted to learn what the Buddha was teaching, when they wanted to wake up, become fully enlightened. It starts with keeping the precepts. That's the foundation. You've got to have a foundation of ethics if you're going to build any sort of spiritual structure on top of that. Then there's guarding the senses. There's being mindful of daily activities, being content with little, abandoning the hindrances. Having abandoned the hindrances, one moves through these jhanas. And then with a jhanically concentrated mind, one investigates reality. And hopefully, eventually, one gains enough insight to overcome the asavas, the intoxicants. Eric Kolvig gave a Dharma talk once, and he said, Samsara is not really a wheel. It's a drunken party in a casino. Our job is to sober up, find the exit, and get out. The intoxicants, the asavas, are the drinks they're serving. Sense pleasures becoming an ignorance. With enough insight, you start seeing the sense pleasures are a dead end. They don't actually give you lasting satisfaction. The becoming, yeah, this life or the next life, whatever you become, it changes. And you've got enough insight into the three characteristics that you overcome ignorance. You see the changeable nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the empty nature of things. That's the breakthrough that leads to awakening. And this is what the gradual training is about. This is the course of practice that the Buddha taught to the monks and nuns. Now there are four additional states, the so-called higher jhanas. Actually in the suttas they're called immaterial states. It's only later that they were referred to as jhanas. There's the realm of limitless space, which we could say is a visualization, but a very concentrated, specific visualization that basically your experience is that you are experiencing a vast, infinite space in front of you. There's the realm of limitless consciousness. In that state, again, it's almost like a visualization, except it maybe doesn't have such a visual component, but you experience the mind as limitless. To see this limitless space, your mind must be as big as the space, so you change your attention from the space to the observer of the space and find that your mind is limitless. The next state is the realm of no-thingness, nothingness. When you arrive in that state, there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. It can be rather frightening for people who stumble into it. Uh, 
I've had a number of students come to me and say, can I tell you about something happened? And they describe being on a long retreat and falling into the void. And I say, well, sounds like the seventh jhana. And they say, yeah, it was really scary. I went running to the teacher and they told me to take a shower and get something to eat and not meditate for three days. And, well, it sounds like the seventh jhana to me. It's nothing to be scared of. Oh, you don't know, right? And so they learn the first four jhanas and they learn number five and number six and they come in for the interview. It's like, yeah, that's number six. Okay, here's how you get to seven. I don't know. I want to go back there. Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So I give them the instructions. And they go off and they come back to the next interview going, yeah, yeah, that's right where I was. That's what it was, only this time it wasn't scary. That's because there's nothing to be afraid of. What they were afraid of was they went into something they didn't know and it was the fear of the unknown. And yeah, if you don't know where you are and you think you've fallen into the void, it can be quite terrifying. But if you go there intentionally, it's great. There's nothing to disturb you. My favorite jhana. And then the eighth jhana, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. Perception is a translation of the Pali word sanya. Sanya means the ability to name things, to identify things. Can you see the guy here? Does a, does a man, I don't know if you can see it, does, does this fellow, you can see the, sort of his face, he's in profile. Can you see him? Everybody see the man? There's no man here. It's just colored shapes. They're black and white shapes. The man is in your head. Okay, you take the shapes, you look them up in your database of potential objects, you find a match and you go, yeah, man looking in profile. That's perception. So the eighth jhana is neither perception nor non-perception. Neither identifying nor not identifying. Uh, neither naming nor not naming. I don't guess that helps a lot. Um, it's a very subtle state. It's far more subtle than the previous ones. Um, I, find, I found that eventually with the first seven, yeah, I got enough skill I could stay in them for yeah, as long as I wanted. You know, seventh jhana for half an hour, cool. The eighth jhana took me well over a year of practice before I could actually go there and stay there. And that happened like once in the month-long retreat. So it's a far more subtle state. These higher jhanas seem to be ways of just generating an even more concentrated mind. Sharper, clearer, brighter, more wieldy, more given to imperturbability. Which means that when you come out and start doing your insight practice, less ego involvement, and the ego stays away for a while. I say come out. What I would say is spend, once you've learned the jhanas, about half of a sitting period stepping through whatever jhanas you know, and then just simply start doing some insight practice. If you like doing choiceless awareness, open up your attention and just be aware with this really quiet mind. If you like doing the body scan, put your attention at the top of your head and do a body scan. If you like doing, well, whatever insight practice it is, it's not that you have to make the jhana go away. You just simply start doing the insight practice. The jhana fades out into the background, but that's fine. It's done its thing. If you're sharpening a knife, yeah, you let go of the whetstone. It's done its thing, and now you start using the knife to make the cuts. Here, you start 
using your mind to cut through your ignorance. So these are the jhanas and the purpose of the jhanas. We've got about five minutes in case there are any questions. Keep your attention on the experience of piti and sukha. So the question was, how do you stay in the first jhana? So the piti sukha experience becomes the focus. Don't take a deep breath, because that'll definitely make it go away. Often what people find happens when it first is occurring, it comes, it sticks around, and then it goes away, and you don't know why. Most likely you got a little distracted, uh, and it just faded out at that point. So really keep your attention on the most intense part of the experience. And that would apply to all of the jhanas. You want to keep the third jhana around, keep your attention on the sense of contentment. Having had this experience in, in retreats, how does it change your everyday life? I mean, how are you different as a person having had this kind of experience? Two things. Probably most important is, with my jhanically concentrated mind, I did a lot of insight practices, and I got a lot of insight into how the world works, and I stopped making some of the stupid mistakes I used to make. I don't quite believe everything is going to last forever that I happen to like. Right? So it was the insights that were really the transformative thing, more than the jhanas itself. It's, it's again, the knife sharpening thing. You know, the whetstone didn't cut the table. Right? It was the sharp knife that did it, but I was able to get a sharp knife because of the jhana practice. The other way, long term, the neuroscientists have discovered that the mind state that you will most likely sort of be in habitually is the mind state that you hang out in all the time you have an emotional set point. So if you spend a lot of time being grumpy and angry, your emotional set point is going to show more activity in the right prefrontal cortex. So when you're just hanging out, you're going to yeah, be kind of grumpy and so forth. You can actually change your emotional set point by spending time in other states that you don't as often spend time in. So by spending time in the jhanas, you're spending time in positive emotional states. And you tend to move your emotional set point so that there's more activity in the left prefrontal cortex, which is correlated with positive emotions. Uh, I have actually, on a number of occasions, meditated for science, either with fMRI or EEG, and I've seen pictures of my brain on jhanas. And when I'm in, well, the first jhana's hard to get because of all the PT and bodily activity kind of screws things up. But second jhana, there's a lot of activity in the left prefrontal cortex. Same thing in the third jhana. Same thing in the fourth jhana. Even though subjectively it's neutral, it's showing more than average activity in the left prefrontal cortex. It's decreasing as I go from happiness to contentment to equanimity. So having spent a lot of time intensely in very positive emotional states, I'm, I'm kind of happy these days. So long term, 
it seems to have made me a happier person. Uh, probably going to take five years of practicing before you notice much. But hey, along the way, you're going to get a lot of great insights. All right. How do I do with craving? The, the craving the, the jhana? Yeah, that's really, really difficult. Um, you have to follow the instructions by figuring out where you are in the set of instructions and paying close attention to stabilizing that and then knowing when to move to the next without ever thinking about the destination. Remember the example of if you want to drive from here to New York City, you know, it says go out to the gate, turn left. When you get to Glen Canyon, turn left. When you get to whatever, turn left. When you get to, and you can't look for New York City, right? Or you drive into the ditch. So the way to deal with the craving is, yeah, forget about the first jhana. Just follow the instruction. Okay, I need to sit down, get settled, get my attention on my breath. I'm distracted. I need to drop the distraction, label it, relax, come back. And I keep doing that till I get to the next turn in the instructions. Okay, now I'm settled in here at access. It says stay there. Okay, and you just stay there. And next it says, okay, been there long enough, find some pleasure, focus on it, do nothing else. No jhana ever showed up in there, but you'll get to the jhana. But yeah, the craving for the jhana comes up. Hopefully, you can let it go when you're meditating. It's just, well, the first hindrance, wanting, right? And so that's a distraction. Label it wanting, craving, whatever you want. Relax and come back to the breathing. That's about the best I can offer. <laughs> Sorry. So, so in this setting, um, what type? What you mentioned that the sitting and the walking, the sitting and the walking, was not originally how it was arrived at. And so, in this setting, what type of um, rhythm to those two activities would you suggest to I'd say that you could probably go with extending the sittings into the walking period if you felt like it. Okay? And probably, you know, when you first hear the bell ringing for the next one, yeah, the next sitting, get up, you know, walk around a little bit, you know, don't just try and sit all the way through 45 minutes, 45 minutes, 45 minutes. But you could extend it, you know, so you have an hour or hour and 20 minutes or something like that, if that feels right. Um, but you don't want to get into craving, you know, and trying to go longer and longer to make it happen because what you really want to do more than anything else, the thing that will be most beneficial for getting into the jhanas is continuous mindfulness. So you sit for 45 minutes and you're mindful of standing up and you're mindful of walking to where your shoes are, and you're mindful of putting on your shoes, and you're mindful of going to your walking place, and you're mindful of doing your walking, and coming back and everything else. And when you eat, you're mindful of standing in line, and you're mindful of washing your hands, and you're mindful of getting your plate, and all the way down the line. So your best strategy is continuous mindfulness to the degree you can. And if you want to extend the sittings, that's okay. I'd say, yeah, 
probably you'll get outside the range of uh, diminishing returns if you try and go more than an hour and a half. Yeah, once you begin to experience them, you start seeing what you're doing, and yeah, you can get there easier. I will say that I learned them doing 45-minute sitting, 30-minute walking, 45-minute sitting, 30-minute walking. So you don't have to extend it, right? The extended was to get me to the Powell ones after I'd gotten really good, you know, and I didn't get to his. Okay. Oh, lots more questions. What do you think? I think people have jobs. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'd love to sit and talk. You know, I can talk about this for a while. Uh, but yeah, their jobs.